Hello, friends. Hit Factory here. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. Welcome, Carly. And welcome to the first official installment of Den Zember, a month-long Hit Factory celebration of our greatest living actor, Denzel Washington. To kick it all off, we have brought back to the program a friend of the show, editor at Logix Magazine, a writer all over the internet, and co-host of This Machine Kills podcast, Edward Ongueso Jr. is here again. Edward, welcome back to Hit Factory. I'm really excited to be on again. Thanks for having me. I don't know why we program this way, but we just kind of said, let's take the most massive of Denzel's movies, one of the definitive pictures of the entire decade, one of the great American movies, some might say, and talk about it right off the bat. Today, we're talking about Malcolm X, a Spike Lee joint he was a man of many names and a disciple of many faces. From pusher to preacher, from convict to statesman, he brought honor to disobedience and a voice to a people who longed to be heard. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock! Nineteen ninety-two film, Spike Lee directing, Denzel in the lead as Malcolm X. Edward, I, I will start it all off and just kick it to you and ask, what is your history with this film? What is your experience with it? How has it evolved over time? I was thinking really hard about it. I think this is the first biopic I ever saw, um, which was like really had a huge influence on what I want from movies. Um, more and more elements of how it was crafted you know i really appreciate the kind of like the different genres that get you know played around in here also as parts of his life i think my also my sense of you know its fidelity to his, his life have evolved over the years one uh, upon you know learning the distance between his life and the autobiography um also the ways in which the autobiography even as told to Alex Haley were changed by Alex Haley mm-hmm. as well as learning about like you know subsequent scholarship and arguments about the scholarship you know namely through like some of the biographies that have come out in the past 10 years but especially with like Manning Marables the life of reinvention um, but I think throughout the years you know even though of course like it emphasizes different parts of his life than the ones I know and I kind of been and were drawn into, especially with the autobiography, right? I think you know 
and we, we can talk about this more in, but, you know, like kind of focusing on his or learning more and appreciating more of his politics and his, and his uh, revolutionary politics. I also understand why the movie doesn't kind of focus on that, right? The movie is, is kind of really just concerned with like this a person's journey through their life, reinventing themselves constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time we get to the point of his life, where he is, you know, outside of the NOI, constructing the OAAU, it's like the final 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Hard to fit that in there. Uh, so I I understand it, but I've come, I think I've come to appreciate it more and more and more over the years as I've, I've revisited it and watched it over and over again. I saw this movie young. Um too young like some of your denzel experiences <laughs> no i mean yeah like i've i've been in love with that man for a very long time um <laughs> so you know admittedly i would have come to this film i think uh at a young age regardless but my entry into this movie is actually the music namely ella fitzgerald um if you know one thing about me it's that like i was born like an 85 year old man um and like was obsessed with big band music and like jazz and blues music from like the 30s and 40s and ella fitzgerald is someone who i listened to a lot like as like a four-year-old yep (laughs) um and I loved her album, A Tisket, A Tasket, which this movie features many songs from. Um, and so I saw the soundtrack for this um, movie in a Tower Records on cassette tape when I was like nine and was drawn to it because it had a ton of Ella Fitzgerald music on it and like a bunch of other songs that I was into. Um, like my prayer and some other things. Um, so I bought the cassette and listened to the soundtrack like ad nauseum and loved it. And then was like, oh, I should probably like watch this movie. Um, so I think when I was like shortly thereafter, when I was like 10, maybe I rented the film, um, and watched it and like, obviously 10 year old, white girl living in suburbia watching <laughs> Malcolm X. Like, you know, like there are some things that I missed. You were, you were planning your own Hajj to Mecca shortly thereafter. Right. Um, you were, you were saying assalamu alaikum to your yeah, mom and dad. Right. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that the movie didn't affect me because it certainly did. Um, but I, I obviously like had to sort of like make sense of the film as best as I could without like the literacy or like, my own like historical experiences to relate to the film um but it was a jumping off point for me because I was so moved by it despite that um and so enthralled by the music of the film and the role that it plays in the movie that like I came back to the movie again and again and as I watched it over the years and as my politics evolved and as like I evolved as a person to your point about like constant reinvention. My relationship with the film changed and my understanding of the film changed. Um, But that's how I came to it. Ella Fitzgerald. That's why I watched (laughs) this movie when I was 10 years old. We all find our ways in one way or another. Uh, I'm going to be the rube here on the podcast today and admit that this is actually my first 
And then my second time watching this film in preparation for the conversation today. Uh, it's one that has been on my watch list for ever now. I mean, certainly as long as we've been doing this podcast and then, you know, far further back than that, that I know that I've had opportunities to watch it and did not uh, for no real reason other than that. I knew we would get to it eventually. I think we even, you know, uh, spoiler for, for the hit factory fandom out there planned Den's Ember for 2022. Uh, and then it just did not materialize. But back then I was like ready to go and like, we're going to watch Malcolm X. We're going to talk about it. But I mean, here I am now having seen it and it's as revelatory as everyone sort of suggested to me that it would be, you know, I have been a fan of Spike for a a while, uh, against the wishes of a a lot of naysayers in my life, I feel like, (laughs) and this is something we should talk about because like this movie starts with, I mean, it starts well before Spike, and we'll talk about that. But uh, Spike Lee is like not the most palatable of like cultural figures to like large swaths of the American public, especially in the '90s. I grew up in a household with parents who I remember, for no like real objective reason, finding him and his movies distasteful, <laughs> and like you know, having seen them and stuff, I, I think like, I remember my, my mom and dad thinking he was kind of pompous, like he was kind of arrogant and brash and I just didn't work for their sensibilities. And so like, I, I think about it a lot because I think about how much he's been sort of like partitioned away from and outside of a lot of the conversations we have about like the great auteurs of his generation. It's, it's, you know, like I was, I was saying, you know, I had a friend in college who introduced me to pretty much all of his work. And, you know, of course, we revisited Do the Right Thing. She's got to have it as those were, you know, some of the first ones we watched. But, you know, it's there are a few directors, I think, and I've enjoyed as much. You have like such a massive range of movies just on the first hand, right? You know, Spike Lee has done... This movie has a bunch of genres, but Spike Lee has done so many movies, right? You know, he's mm-hmm. done, he did, he adapted the Greek play. He's done documentaries. He's done family <laughs> dramas, uh, which is adaption of another play. Uh, he's done such a crazy range of movies, and I think that they're all pretty. They're all pretty good. It, it's really such a, an amazing body of work, and I think that you know part of the overlooking is like a lot of it is you know, our films that are looking at being black in this country or black experiences and maybe part of, you know, there's been overlooking partly because there's an assumption going in like, oh, well, you know, these are movies that are just, you know, black movies. And 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 I think that there can be sometimes among, you know, critics or audiences like a sort of assumption of what you're going to get or pigeonholing them into different types of an experience to prepare for. But as it stands, you know, Spike Lee has such a really such a wide range, really distinctive style, really fun. I've loved his appearances and cameos in his own movies also, which is something mm-hmm. that I feel like a lot of directors don't even let themselves have fun with, um, <laughs> you know, as he should. I mean, like the movie opens up with him, you know, and there's like a dynamic, you know, um, that emerges where he's. You know, just being silly as shit <laughs> with, uh, with Denzel Washington <laughs> yep. in this movie, um, and also his movies. I mean, so many of the movies have some of my favorite performances by a lot of actors. Right? 
uh, not a lot of directors, I think, who like so consistently just kind of it feels like really create a nice space for an actor to live in the skin of whoever uh, they're acting as, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, it's it, I think it's it's a shame because like. You know, you go through his body work, just dozens of movies that are just like really amazing and fun to to listen to, to watch, also to read the scripts of, you know, that uh, should have him being talked about as much as other directors who are giants. Yeah, on the point of Spike creating like really nice spaces for actors to do some of their best work, I think you know, you could argue this film is certainly one of those places. I think about um, Summer of Sam and mm-hmm. Mira Sorvino's performance in that movie. I'm like not a fan of hers. Yeah. And I watched that film and was like blown away by her and like really, really felt how direct a result that was of Spike Lee and how he directs actors and and the the types of environments he creates for that work to take place. It's interesting to think of him in these like two two sides of a coin where like there are people I think who will argue that he is um particularly now in his older age much more entrenched in like establishment structures of power yeah, in right. Hollywood. I mean, doing Bitcoin ads and stuff. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> when I met, yeah. I met him a few times watching when we were, because uh, I was watching World Cup at a bar that, as I learned, is literally right next to his, uh, to his place. Oh wow. And, oh, wow. And I was like, oh, do I ask him about the Bitcoin? No, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to ask him why he did those ads. But yeah, you know. A disappointing development. It's yeah. disappointing, and I, and I think like, y- you know, to to be successful in Hollywood and in any like dominant structure of power run by white people, um, like y- there has to be a certain amount of of submission to certain things and like a tampering down of maybe like more anti-establishment and, and like radical impetuses. But then there's also the argument that like, he is in fact, like one of the lone, like radical voices operating in establishment structures of power within Hollywood, particularly in, um, in early in his career. And I think that like, you can look at his filmography through those lenses and kind of understand which films might be, you know, doing that versus something else. Um, She's got to have, it was the second movie of his I ever saw after Malcolm X. And like that movie just like fucking ran me over like a freight train. Like I was obsessed with it. And to your point, Edward, like so many of his films are about like, showcasing black experiences that aren't necessarily seen on screen i hesitate to sort of like say he's this or that type of filmmaker because to your point i think what's more important about his body of work and him as a figure is like his talent and just how massive and expansive his like his body of work and his ranges and the ways in which he is able to have such range and still be such a distinct 
um, visionary in his work with a very like recognizable like paintbrush in his movies. And even watching this film, which takes on the posture of like, you know, this sort of epic biopic thing that we know well in Hollywood, like it still feels like a Spike Lee joint. It still feels like a movie he made. And I I think it's like pretty remarkable that he's able to do that, regardless of what his films are saying. Like I... I find it really impressive that he is able to have such a range to take on such massive stories and also such small, more intimate and personal stories like she's got to have it and still be this like very recognizable force in filmmaking. I Mm -hmm. think there are a few other people that manage to do that as adeptly. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, it also makes me think of the joke I think he told at a press junket where it's like, despite the range, you know, every single time he loses, it's still fucking driving moving, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, yes. I forgot that he made that joke because of Miss Daisy and then uh, Green Book thereafter, right? Oh my God, no. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know what, but that too, I think, is like an observation uh, of just like the stasis of Hollywood and it's like accolade systems, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like prestige Mm -hmm. kind of like awards corners of, of that industry where this movie, you know, like not that it really makes any difference to its significance or its meaning or or power or anything. But like it was effectively shut out of the Oscars. Like it it got a nomination for uh, Denzel who like uh, obviously unimpeachable in this movie, like to not do that would feel crazy. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It would feel insane. Uh, Of course he, he loses to Pacino for scent of a woman this year, which is largely a legacy Oscar where Pacino's just in his like shouting phase already, you know, Um, And then the costume designer, Ruthie Carter, gets uh, a nomination as well. But beyond that, there is nothing here. Nothing for Spike. Angela Bassett, too, like ignored in this movie as as like prominent like black women performers often are by those institutions. But let's let's talk a little bit about the history of this movie really briefly. It all starts in the late 1960s with Marvin Wirth, producer who acquires the rights to Alex Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X. And he works for a a very long time to get this thing to the screen. Uh, By the 70s, he's commissioned a script, or even like late 60s, has commissioned a script by Arnold Pearl, who will remain credited as one of the screenwriters on the film alongside Spike. Uh, And also James Baldwin is one of the early writers of this. Yeah, he turned his screenplay into... um... Into a book, right? Into uh, One Day, I think. Yes. One Day When I Was Lost, a scenario based on Alex Haley's The Autobiography of Malcolm X in 1972. Uh, apparently, Baldwin did not have a great time with this mm. process, collaborating and working with the uh, the avenues of Hollywood. At a certain point later on in one of his uh, other books in 1976, he wrote that he would rather be horsewhipped or incarcerated <laughs> in the bedlam of Bellevue rather than repeat the adventure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, we can, yeah, it's just doesn't seem like he, he had a particularly grand time doing it. Um, but somewhere around this time, too, in the 70s, uh, Worth gets a documentary produced 
of Malcolm X that is directed by Arnold Pearl and released posthumously. He dies in 71. The movie comes out in 72 uh, and then labors again and again and again over the course of the next, uh, you know, 20 years or so to try to get a narrative feature to screen. And it goes through any number of rewrites. I think at one point I saw like the name David Mamet come up as one mm-hmm. of the people who did like one of the mm-hmm. versions of this script. Oh my God. Which I mean, yeah. you know, pre his like grand radicalization in the aughts, I guess. So maybe it would be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, progressive than it, it would be by the David Mamet of 2023. I know, but can you but... picture this movie with like Mamet dialogue? <laughs> no, I like, can't. It would be fuck fucking no. awful. Yeah. Terrible. Oh, God. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Oh, um, but uh, for a long period of time there, then in the 80s, the film is uh, supposedly going to be helmed by Norman Jewison, who directed In the Heat of the Night. Of course, there is a public outcry because Norman Jewison is a white man. <laughs> and this is a sort of definitively black story about one of the most important black figures uh, in all of 20th century America. And uh, most vocal among those people criticizing the decision to have Jewison helm the film uh, is Spike Lee, who has wanted to make the film for a long time. It is, to his credit, Jewison who gets Denzel Washington attached to the film. Spike, to his credit, also says, uh, or claims at least, that he had never envisioned anybody but Denzel in the role, that it would also be his choice and, and wasn't you know just a holdover of the sort of Jewison era of, of the film's gestation. Um, and I had no idea about this until I started looking into it, but Denzel had played Malcolm X already on an off-Broadway production called the, When the Chickens Came Home to Roost. Didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So he had, uh, I guess, made waves doing that in the early 80s. Uh, and it's largely about his relationship with Elijah Muhammad. And so he had a little bit of practice in the role already, but it went into like, total like research head mode <laughs> for this film, watched interviews, read all the books, studied and labored over it, perfected the voice. Uh, and it all shows on screen and what we get. I, I think it's um, the, the best possible version of this film that I, I can envision. Not that I can you know really envision it any other way. It feels definitive at this point. But um, we, we get the film that we see now. And, and even while it's being produced, uh, it's mired in controversy. My the main sense of the controversy I had was uh, coming down to uh, struggling to get fund uh, funding and debates yeah. over about what the screenplay should actually entail. Because I think after um, the rewrites, that kind of get that that shifted away and pull it away from Baldwin's uh, vision. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a pretty vicious. Uh, uh, debate over you know what the scripts is actually going to look like. Amiri Baraka was one of the most vocal people criticizing Spike Lee publicly and his decision to go forward with the movie. He led a lot of demonstrations, I guess, and like some protests that amassed like a, a several hundred people in certain places, like <laughs> that were just protesting this conceit of producing this film. They were worried that it was going to defang. Uh, Malcolm's legacy and uh, that like it would sort of soften the blow of some of his politics and some of his philosophies. Um, I I came to understand that Baraka and Spike Lee had like a very 
uh, long storied, like yeah. personal debate and conflict yeah. with one another over the years. So it became very like very personalized in the media and the press, a lot of barbs and a lot of venom being spat. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was largely the same conflict that came about with a, a lot of other voices. Um, we read a, a criticism by, by bell hooks as well, which we'll definitely talk about a little bit. Um, and just about sort of like the commodification of Malcolm's image and, and sort of the sanding down of some of maybe the, the sharper details of who he was as a person and specifically as like, a, a, a militant kind of organizer yeah i mean that makes I, that makes sense and you i did know amir brock and them him had beef but i had no idea it was like they were just getting nasty with each other over the <laughs> depiction of the movie <laughs> yeah at one point spike i think like even mentioned that like w- he didn't come out he said something like he didn't come out to harlem until after malcolm had already been killed before that he was like ginning it up with ginsburg and the gang in like oh, california damn. and like living, living the beatnik life like he, oh. he you know and so, you know punches punches thrown shots fired in the media like left and right um and of course as you alluded to edward he had some some fights with the studio as well because he he wanted the budget and he wanted a runtime that exceeded a certain amount uh of money and a certain number of minutes uh, and eventually had to like call in the big guns and got some very generous donations from uh, prominent black celebrities, among them uh, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Prince, your beloved Tracy Chapman. Carly was also in there. She's a queen. She's a queen. Um, but these were not, you know, like people uh, contributing and and sort of uh, investing in the film. They they are, as Spike pointed out, like people who like came about and generously like donated funds because the the company that now held all the financing rights to the movie were like you can't spend another dime on this and also it can't run more than two hours and 15 minutes so he was able to make the movie he wanted at the appropriate runtime uh and and with all the funds that he needed uh a, a funny side note to this later on down the line he really wanted to collaborate uh with michael jordan and other people at warner brothers to uh produce space jam and was basically like blocked from participating in that because wb was so pissed off about the way he went about financing malcolm x like sort they of behind the more money <laughs> oh. yeah which is wild to me it's like he got the money he needed like it's not like he like y- you weren't gonna put it up like you yeah. weren't gonna pay me to, to do this it, i think that they were just kind of embittered about him getting to do things his way and on his terms because he he got the money he needed from other sources um but we uh, in turn did not get to see a Spike Lee Space Jam. So, is the world better or worse for it? We'll never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would that look like? What do you think? <laughs> Sound off in the comments. Uh, <laughs> let, let's talk about the movie proper a little bit and get into just like what the film is about, where it starts off, how it uh, approaches the subject. These early parts of the film are compelling to me because before we even get into his story, we start off, of course, with the visage of an American flag. Uh, and we hear Malcolm X giving this speech, uh, talking about the evils of the white man. Uh, and it is all overlaid with footage of the Rodney King beating. 
And it, I mean, it's it's startling to be sure. And I can, I you know imagine it in 1992 as well, just a year on from the incident actually happening, and how yeah. potent uh, an image that might be for audiences. Yeah, you know that is one of the most powerful openings uh i've seen for a movie um especially because you know he's also taken a i mean he's taken a speech that malcolm x gave and adding a little bit to it but in but in that beginning you get all of it right you get the sense of like uh, malcolm's rhetoric and his voice and the and a tease of the noi days and some of them and the direct you know political uh you know, criticisms and commentary that he would have overlaid with like yes something that happens decades later right um still being like you know a perfect fit uh, in a way to look at and understand um you know the beating i think that that was just like i was you know i was sold already when i when i learned of the movie because i loved the adaptation but i, I love the the autobiography but to but to open it up with like that crazy choice really really crazy choice i loved it so i love it so much i think about that opening it's really remarkable that he he burns the american flag mm-hmm. at the closing of that yep. opening too um and you contrast that with like an image like the one of of george c scott and Patton, right mm-hmm. against the american flag that's just that image is like emblazoned in like popular culture our our collective minds in popular culture as like a a you know sterling visage of of American patriotism and um and might and like evoking that to a certain degree in the opening of this film and then burning the flag I think is um is just stunning and also really speaks to um to your point Edward like how entrenched in film and film history and the genres of film that spike is you know there's like four four movements potentially in the movie but there's also an argument to be made that the first half is basically about his like mistakes or his um you know his like troubles growing up and then the second half is about him becoming the figure that um that we know and and i think there are like you know some valid criticisms to be made bell hooks makes this point in her piece in art forum that came out uh in february of 1993 just uh, about four months after the movie was released where she you know sort of bemoans the fact that the film spends so much time focusing on his like zoot suit gangster days um and and that that is, you know, corrupting his image to a certain degree. And I think that's valid. Um, and I also think it's interesting, you know, to think about how Spike uses different genres of filmmaking within that first half of the film. Yep. I'm speci- specifically thinking of, like, the musical genre when Denzel and Spike are walking after... Denzel as Malcolm gets his hair straightened and relaxed and he has that conch on his head. Mm -hmm. Um, They're walking down the street synchronized 
in zoot suits to music and it's that <laughs> shot that like we know from musicals when you're just like tracking with the the two protagonists and yep. they're like waving at people and spinning around like it is straight from a hollywood musical of like the 40s and 50s um and then of course you have the sock hop and um and all of these like really colorful expressions of like uninhibited black joy in in these like dance hall sequences that are just like stunning and breathtaking and it's interesting to think about like his insistence on those elements being in the film both in the beginning of the film and at the end of the film at the Audubon and that those were points of focus for him over what, you know, bell hooks chides, maybe more some of the more like militant and um, like brutal elements of his life and the violence that um, that he and black people in America experienced. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I thought that those points raised were interesting. I really, I was thinking about them because, you know, on the one hand, I totally do get that. You know, if we're going to craft this picture of Malcolm X and flesh out, like, just how angry he was and how militant he is, there's something to be gained by showing, you know, one, the violence that was, you know, done to him in multiple ways and not just have it kind of framed largely in, you know, life avenues cut off, like, when he's a child and... Uh, the teacher's like, you can't be a lawyer, you should be a carpenter, you know, mm -hmm. or in, uh, you know, internal fights where, you know, he has, uh, you know, that argument with Archie about whether or not he did have his number hit and ends up having to run out from them because they're trying to kill him. Um, but instead, you know, what white people did to him, because that first half does kind of limit it largely to does, like conflict that's like inter, like interpersonal maybe where it's like you know the um the 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 sequence where he's on the train and he's like fantasizing about shoving uh, the cake in the guy's face because yeah. he's like oh you're a good boy you know you're excited or when the boss comes in and he miss <laughs> and he says the wrong name and he's like it, it's mr cooper don't forget it you know like or also like paranoia and fear that he might have that gets transmuted into anger like when a uh, sophia is feeding him and he's suddenly paranoid about uh, her and he's like okay are you going to uh like wh why do you actually are, do you just like me because i'm black are you going to accuse me of rape are you going to run out on me like what's going on um and, and instead we don't get many depictions of violence of white people against black except mainly in the story of his father and we also don't get many depictions of the violence from him right you know as she points out the autobiography kind of talks about um you know him saying he did unspeakable things and we can assume you know that you know these are very horrendous or violent things and they don't really uh talk about it at all instead it's largely limited to like stealing and doing numbers um and clever sleight of hand to make it seem like he's crazy in that moment with rudy where he's playing russian roulette but there's no bullet in the chamber um <clears throat> and that i kind of understand her point in saying like if you flesh out those moments it would also help to highlight how the flip side of his militancy is 
a deep commitment to like also making sure that he, black people don't suffer and and this gets hot and this might bring more of humanity even more humanity to his later parts of the years especially this time in oau where he's really trying to figure out how to make like a broad coalition movement with other uh groups that might have rejected him because you know he was a separatist because he was a nationalist because he was militant in the noi um but i do think that the decision but then on the other hand i see the decision to kind of center it squarely on like here are these moments of black joy but even these moments of black joy interspersed and, and kind of infected with like you know white gaze because you have uh this desire to conk out the hair you have these styles of clothing and music that might be a bit more influenced by them and you also have the white woman lurking there in the bond yeah, the usurper I, yeah yeah right <laughs> and so it's like i see why he did it because you still kind of end up you can still achieve that desired effect maybe you lose out maybe you soften some of the militancy and undersell how angry he was all the time and how violent he was in that period of life and maybe that doesn't communicate how profound of a transformation and reinvention he was going through but you can also but i think spike lee does also do a good job of communicating that by just showing how much of his daily life was permeated with maybe self-date or self-hate but also like anger about mm-hmm. the way that things are in private fantasies and accusations and in um in you know recklessness that then disappears almost immediately um with like you know the 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 the, the fake uh, inmate um or the fictional inmate uh, Baines, right? And mm-hmm. and his introduction to him and him guiding him and in, in introducing him to Islam and then to the nation of Islam. I could see a movie where you focus more on Detroit Reds, you know, brutality and violence and also the way in which society treated him. But, you know, the, I think the shortcuts that Spike Lee were, made still work in a way. Mm-hmm. And also our shortcuts that I think also Bill Hooks then points out are ones that make sense within the within the trope of like this lonely hero, right? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. And I, I think that her criticisms there were like also really poignant, right? You know, the movie does kind of excise Malcolm's family mm-hmm. from his role in the creation of him, while at the same time you know the family that we do when we do finally start to see him care about his family it's his wife and it's his daughters um but it's in a way that it feels like oh it's because islam gave this to him and not like that was always there with him as as much as the militancy and the hatred for the suffering that this country inflicts on black people yeah, I, that bell hooks piece that we keep talking about, and, w- and we'll link it in the show notes for listeners. Um, that art form piece is is really fantastic. It it helped to kind of reframe and recontextualize some of the things that I was feeling about it. I know that like after we watched it, I mentioned to Carly, I said I find really compelling uh, the fact that in this movie, Spike sort of takes our understanding of like institutional white supremacy and just like the nature of racism and racial violence in America as a given and doesn't spend too much time in it and focusing on it. We see, you know, obviously like the KKK committing violence and, you know, murdering his, his father and, you know, burning their house down. And we see these kind of like small microaggressions. And as you mentioned, sort of like 
Malcolm and like other characters sort of like assimilationist tendencies by like conking out their hair and, you know, like trying to like sort of almost deny blackness and sort of insert themselves more into something that is uh, more, more palatable to like to white people in society. But we don't. And, and I think about this, you know, in, in the kinds of movies about race that white people make specifically that they they really do like sometimes over rotate on engendering like images and moments of like black suffering in them to try to, you know, and I don't know, you know, if I'm being cynical, it's like, oh, this is them trying to like win over an audience who is like poised not to care about these kinds of things. But I, I, you know, I, I think there's two sides to it. I think that you can look at it from, from two lenses, which is either uh, Spike is choosing not to like languish that you know and and spend too much time in that space to get to sort of the thrum in the heart of the story or you know maybe it's a failure on his part as a director where he like doesn't uh imbue those moments with enough of that and instead favors these sort of like archetypal hollywood kind of moments in his filmmaking and and does that instead so yeah i think it's i think it's an interesting kind of uh two sides of of the same coin here that you're kind of playing around with as you observe this early part of the movie especially you can see both i think the negotiation right as you talk about where he's having to you know the movie in of itself is already a hard sell the length is a hard sell the topic is a hard sell he's carrying out a project both of like you know uh, presenting a figure who's a hero among black people to, in a way that doesn't undermine the legacy, but also is in, a, in a way that may or may not be palatable to white audiences um, as, a, as an attempt not to do revisionism, at least intentionally, but at least to try to like show him in a way that's honest to him or in his understanding of him that um, will get people to see it and think about it and watch it. And so, yeah, there's, there ends up being, there are negotiations here where it's like, yeah, you know, uh, focusing on certain images over others or scenes over others or chunks of his life over others. Um, but as you, but I think your point about how, you know, taking the background racism in the country for granted is also part, is an interesting point because I think that also feeds into why, like, we don't get as much as you know maybe as bell hooks or other critics might have wanted his more militant anti-colonial um arguments right we don't get his words or you know all of his thoughts on on wars that the united states is engaged in on on struggles across the world right that he was giving both in the noi and the oaau um but at the same time it's I think the movie does a good job of like making it clear that like the, you know, this is probably, he probably would have, you know, felt that way one way or another about these things, right. That we get the sense by the time he's like kind of come into his political identity, you know, that this is someone who, you know, is strident anti-imperialist, you know, that this is someone who criticizes, you know, U S adventures, criticizes capitalism, criticizes, you know, white supremacy. Um, and maybe that's also part of why, those criticisms and complaints don't come to the bear in the same way that like not every instance or version or form of police brutality or of racism uh, gets displayed, even though there are like, you know, pretty integral and core ones here. Right. 
you know, you know, his father getting lynched or, and the attempts to lynch them before with the Black Legion you know, and the Klan coming in and trying to set the house on fire. As well as the instances at the hospital after you know, when he's in the NOI, you know, like there are I think there are enough images to set the baseline. And then it's fair to have criticism that like maybe adding more focusing on different ones might have sharpened it into an even more militant image that adheres a little bit more and has more fidelity to him but it does bring up the question that i was asking myself which is like when you are in the position that spike lee is in making this movie funded by a major hollywood studio being given the task to you know create a film about a figure who is um who many white audiences if not all are allergic to right (laughs) And also being told, like, you got to get butts in the seats. You need to make us money. Right. Um, And and like what it it, like I asked myself, like, what movie could he have made? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and and we come back to this a lot, I think, when we're talking about the potential for radical art to be made within current structures of power and like if that's even possible and and what radical art looks like um and maybe radical art in certain cases is not radical capital r but is radical in the sense that like what is accomplished is um a feat in and of itself and that's kind of how I feel about this movie. Although I think Hooks makes some really, really good points. In particular, she had me thinking about this film sort of within the canon of like a lot of movies in the early 90s that came out about racism and about slavery that are there like to really sort of languish in the horrors of those things as a means of engendering white guilt so that like white audiences can be like, okay, I felt bad about this thing. That's my like good white person duty for the day. Right. The catharsis of feeling like the, the, the pain and then like moving beyond the pain. Yeah. And that guilt isn't generative. Right. Right. And I think about movies like glory, which Denzel Washington is in, um, which I very much consider in that canon of like an apologia that ostensibly like justified slavery in its assertion of like its own horrors um, and the way that it makes white audiences feel Um, and a time to kill and other movies like that, that I think, at the time were seen as like really progressive and like as like sterling examples of the progress that had been made in America. But that feeling, that conceit, that understanding of those films is ultimately evidence of counter to that assertion, which Mm -hmm. is that like, our reliance on those films to tell us that progress has been made is precisely the indicator that progress has not been made. The material realities haven't changed. And, you know, these sort of identitarian and cultural wins are, are things that Malcolm himself criticized often Mm -hmm. in his speeches. Um, And so it's interesting to take that and think about this film in the context of those other films and like, sort of where where it fits within that landscape and you could argue that the very insistent insertion of the footage of Rodney King being beaten at the outset of the film is 
Spike's acknowledgement that like nothing has changed, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that like this movie that you're about to watch is important and it's here for a reason. Um, but it's not an indicator that things are like good and better. This movie being made is not like a thing that should be a salve for you that makes you feel good about the progress that black Americans have made or not made in, um, in white America. Mm -hmm. And so like that for me, I think sort of solidifies that while there are things about this film that feel sort of traditionally Hollywood totemic biopic that like there is still an acknowledgement outright and like unspoken that things are not better. If the so-called Negro in America was truly an American citizen, we wouldn't have a racial problem. If the Emancipation Proclamation was authentic, we wouldn't have a race problem. If the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were authentic, we wouldn't have a race problem. If the Supreme Court desegregation decision were authentic, we would not have a race problem. But you have to see that all of this is hypocrisy. That's right. These Negro leaders are running around telling the white man that everything is all right, yes. that we got everything under control, yes. that everything the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches is wrong. Yes. But I'm telling you, Mr. Muhammad said these things were going to come to pass, and now these things are starting to come to pass. Now these same Negro leaders are running around talking about there's about to be a racial explosion. <laughs> yes, there's going to be a racial explosion. Yes, sir. And a racial explosion is more dangerous than an atomic explosion. There's going to be an explosion because black people are dissatisfied. They're dissatisfied not only with the white man, but with these Uncle Tom Negro leaders that are trying to pose as, as spokesmen for you and I. Just, just like you have a, just like you have a powder keg. When you have a powder keg and there's too many sparks around it, the thing's going to explode. That's right. And if the thing that's going to explode is sitting inside the house, and if it explodes, then the house is going to be destroyed. That's right. I said the house is going to be destroyed. So the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is teaching you and I and trying to tell the white man to get this powder keg out of his house. Yes. Let the black man separate from his house. That's Let the right, black sir. man have his own house. Yes. Let the black man have his own land yes. and his own property. Yes. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad is trying to tell the white man that this thing, this explosion is gonna bring down his house. This is what he's trying to tell him. And more importantly, he's trying to tell him that if he doesn't do something about it, if he doesn't do something about it, it's gonna explode any day now. And yes it is. And I'm just here to tell you, and I'm gonna make it very short. I'm here to tell you about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's greatest greatness. His greatest greatness is that he has the only solution for peace in this country. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad solution is the only solution for you and I. It's the only solution for the white man. Complete separation between the black race and the white race. That's the only solution. You know, ending it with the eulogy, right? That eulogy makes me think about that too, where the eulogy is both 
kind of like a celebration of his life and also recognition of how bad things are and continue to be and that like that makes the task urgent to like press on and continue struggling for you know the destruction of this white supremacist system um in a multitude of ways right that the that the movie is a good way to showcase the life of someone who tried to dedicate who eventually dedicated themselves to that task and died and was killed for it and so the work continues right in that way because i think like, like you're right you know there's there's a huge amount of apologia even today they're still you know ongoing right where i feel like so so often it seems that if hollywood discovers um a th- some sort of critical movie or radical critique that resonates with people then we are made to suffer through increasingly dumber iterations of it right i've been recently railing everyone told my friends about like how i feel this way but with the eat the rich movies right mm-hmm. but yep. especially with the you know slave and white guilt movies but the you know i think the eat the rich ones are also a relevant example here where it's like you know you have you know, we know we can get a sense of what the limits of the criticism or the limits of a film and its presentation of these ideas might be you know and i think parasite offers like a good look at like how smart and nuanced you can go but then you know what you might run up into in the end also partly because of how people will try to recreate it right and then we get years and years and years afterwards of people just making movies where it's like well what if poor people are bad too you know <laughs> and 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 missing out the point that also like you know when you ha- and and also by generating all these movies like what actually you know it hasn't changed the things right the movies kind of are happening at the same time of the different actual discussions and debates and you know shifts in society itself about how people think about wealth and privilege and power and class and sometimes the movies latch onto it and capture it in a uh, you know what's going on in a flash in a pan and sometimes they just kind of map out like weird attempts to uh, jump off of it but not actually contribute to it and i think similarly with some of these like white guilt and apologia movies it's like okay well we know that this is like hot topping hot button topic people want to talk about it people are interested in talking about it for some people presenting a movie will be enough because of the discussions that they'll have um and maybe it might subvert some people from you know going on a more radical track and and, and you know figuring out ways to organize or act it'll be active um but it but it will suffice for others who are interested in just kind of thinking about these things and talking about them. You know, I, I'd be like one thing I was thinking about when I was watching is like, what would the Malcolm or what would a similar biopic of a revolutionary look like? And, you know, we do have an answer. I think like with the Judas and the black Messiah was, is an example of one where, you know, you, you take a very militant and revolutionary figure uh, you know Fred Hampton, and reframed the story in a lot of really interesting and bizarre ways. That still managed to get the end product, which is a film that's supposed to talk about Black Panthers and the rise and the fall of them, but makes so many weird uh, choices that it becomes clear there's a disconnect between the subject's politics and the and the deployment of the movie because the movie ends up being crafted as something for people to just like do and and watch and see right instead of uh 
maybe think about what they you know next steps like okay well you know i've learned about the black panthers what do i want to do is there is there anything i can plug into today is there anything else i can do from here like what's the next steps versus like here's a weird depiction of a, of a subject and i think you know for any faults it may have i do think the, that the film malcolm x helped kick off interest both interest in malcolm x and also like a and people who then desired to try to you know get become more active, um, learn more themselves and become more active, radicalize and become more active in ways that a lot of the other apologia and white guilt don't because they come after and they, and, or at the same time, and they're just interested in like that. Yeah. That's sort of like consumptive satisfaction. You know, I think that the kind of like contradictions of Malcolm X, uh, by the way, Black Panthers, uh, just on that topic, uh, Bobby Seale makes a cameo in this movie as a street pre- preacher for a minute. Shout out, friend of the show, Black on Panthers. On the other side of that coin, so does Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton does too. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. Well, yeah. and there and therein lies, I think, the uh, the contradictions right at the heart of the story. And, and I think that that's kind of, for better or for worse, what Spike is interested in in this movie is the kind of like fragmented persona of Malcolm X and sort of like the inability for any one person or any one group or any one philosophy to really like pin down who the man is and like what he what what he stands for you know like I think the the bell hooks argument that we were talking about and and kind of what you were pausing Edward is one way into the story where there's sort of this like latent thrum of like a revolutionary mindset that is instilled from an early age and we see all the kind of ways that his perspectives are informed and shaped by his reality and his experience and spike's movie does something else which is like makes him a really kind of like reactive figure throughout a lot of of his life you know and and uh sort of like synthesizing all of these different experiences and all these different things that he comes into contact with but by and large you know like having distinct sort of like eras of his life that are informed by his reality and shape them but also like his i I won't say susceptibility i'll I'll say like his capacity for evolution and for change and the way that his thinking changes and like that inability to like lock him down and pinpoint exactly where he is at any given time and, and to any one person i think is like part of the appeal of of a figure like Malcolm to Spike, you know, it, and I think one of the most interesting elements here is to like commit to the reinvention of of Malcolm X because mm-hmm. you could easily kind of you could also paint it would be very easy to paint it as if like there were many more consistent thorough lines. And not that this is also someone who is actively searching. Yes. Um, yep. And taking advantage of moments in front of them. And 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 that who they ended up becoming might in retrospect maybe feel inevitable because of their because of their experiences early on, but that it also required like this constant desire to like figure out who they were, you know, what they thought of the world around them. Um, as they, you know, were dealt shitty hand after shitty hand, and also after they made a, a, a string of shitty decisions, right? Um, and I think that that decision, you know, 
to reinvent it is also one to to spike these credit because yeah you could have easily made a film where it just kind of suggests that he was always had this sort of militancy or political awareness about him um and again you know to go back to the bell hicks uh critique because i think you know she raises a kind of similar point where something that does get lost though you know is that while he is yes it is true that he is constantly reinventing there are constants throughout his life that we lose sight of that would have also been helpful for fleshing out um why he reacts to things the way that he does you know why he becomes a criminal why he goes into noi why he chooses the oaau and we do get like sufficient we do get a sufficient explanation via the um the plot of it the story itself because these are the things that are driving forces but you know like she said losing like cutting out the family cutting out the relationships that he has with black women um are 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 problems that you know make it a bit harder for us to uh, get a sense of like how he views them because it's limited largely to his wife and sophia um but then also um you know, and this is as we've learned in the later years, right? As we've learned more about just how extensive Malcolm X's reinvention was, to the point of also uh, presenting some, you know, false pictures of himself in the autobiography, and the debate over how much of that is true or not. You know, I think then it be- then it raises an even bigger question, like, okay, well, like if we had, you know, crafted the movie, or if someone else had done the movie and made it, you know, is there another way? to do it that pays fidelity to this newer rediscovered malcolm x or that plays both and tries to figure out and tries to maybe be meta about like you know how there's there's even um ambiguity about what's true and what's not um or debates over what's true and what's not and i think for the for also for that reason that's one reason why spike lee's kind of you know swing at it also has resonated more and more over the years because i think that because his also is in one way or another kind of, uh, you know, he, he rejects that it's revisionist, but maybe in retrospect, it's not intentionally uh, revisionist, but in retrospect with all these things that we are, all these debates that we've had with Manny Marable's biography with a price, um, Pewer's biography, I think it is choosing to having a vision that's choosing to adhere to a large chunk of the autobiography from Alex Haley, um also presents us with like a chance that i just capture uh, in a moment of time how a lot of people were thinking about malcolm x how they were negotiating their feelings about malcolm x how they were able to talk about malcolm x and not able to talk about malcolm x it's like a fundamental to think about this film within the context of like the time it came out right yeah. and like and what was being taught in schools to white and black children mm-hmm. about malcolm x and like literally that it was like there's a good way to ask for human rights and then there's a bad way um and these are the two like totems king and x that you need to use to sort of like um transfuse all of your understandings of what the struggle for black liberation looks like and and even pausing them as like opposite poles of a spectrum right is just like so insane but it is something i remember like largely like being indoctrinated with from a young age as like a a, a kid in school. Which is why I think this insistence on his permutation and his reinvention is actually, is actually quite interesting and powerful 
in the sense that one, it not only like fights back against that sort of like flattening and even uh, counter to Bell Hooks's point, his commodification. I think if you're showing a man that is constantly evolving and to your point, Edward, like responding to moments in time, anticipating moments in time, shifting and being dedicated to to growing and changing, that that is um, that is revolutionary in and of itself because it prevents this sort of uh, the the you know kind of lurch of of these hegemonic forces from making him into a one thing one thing being taught in schools and understood a certain way mm-hmm. a certain legacy um, that is only available. Um, to us broadly speaking and then i think the other thing that's important about the insistence on that you know permutation and his constant evolution is that that permutation is inherently anti-capital right Mm -hmm. like it acts against market forces that might seek to transmute his ideologies and his image and his ideas his his ideas and and even his acts into something that can be co-opted and turned into a commodity for the purpose of serving capital and you know we can get into the argument of like in making a film about malcolm like is that is that somehow flattening and commodifying his image but i do think there are elements of this film like the insistence that Spike has on Malcolm's evolution as a person that counter that sort of those, those commodification seeking forces that might um, be at work on a figure like Malcolm X. I keep thinking about like how I just saw the Napoleon biopic and I think about how, you know, even though Napoleon had a great many f- you know set of factors acting upon him the movie makes a very conscious choice to kind of flatten and collapse most of him in onto his relationship with josephine mm-hmm. and his like absolute all-consuming love for her and uh how it was not exactly returned um <laughs> <laughs> until probably the near the end of his life and 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 ends up kind of reframing and reshifting and recontextualizing and re-explaining a lot of things in that uh, relationship as the core. Whereas, you know, like you said, and and that presents Napoleon that in a different way doesn't quite feel like a commodity, but more so a joke or, you know, that he's having with him. But it does create a different creates a product of sort like someone who feels more distant from the thing and feels less human that you can engage with and more so like an idea that you're playing around with whereas yeah you know by having malcolm at the center constantly be trying to question who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it and then stepping back and looking at the situations that he finds himself constantly re-examining yeah they are they're anti-capitalist and they're you know they they run up into the edges of the system. It, he's coming up against uh, you know his mother being institutionalized and his father being lynched mm-hmm. against the crime that he ends up doing. Um, 
in Det- uh, in uh, in Harlem against uh, and, and in Boston against the prison system and the you know the inca- and mass incarceration and then also against um, you know when he gets out more you get to see more of these forces come down on black people come down on Muslim people um, and come down on people who are oppressed in the United States and abroad right and so I think that yeah I def yeah I definitely think that I think that that's a good kind of counter right that the constant reinvention maybe the maybe you it helps maybe someone down the line is able to take the film or take presentations of him in create a commodity but that the subject is not being presented in a commodified form because he is constantly changing and rejecting the forces that are trying to shape him into a thing a very specific thing even in his noi period where he's constantly trying to he, he at first you know he is a lap dog for uh, uh elijah muhammad but you know even in the org gets a reputation for not uh following the strict mold of everyone else and that's part of his success until it isn't right yes yeah and I think that that's, uh, yeah, that ends up being a really kind of powerful thread that continues throughout the whole the whole movie. Yeah, I think the film in a handful of sequences kind of invites this sort of like rejection of like coronating like icons of particular movements or or like even of just like particular places within one's own life. You know, like we, we get it in, uh, very minor ways. Like I, I think about Delroy Lindo in the movie as West Indian Archie, who is fantastic. A huge Delroy Lindo fan uh, shout out. Uh, but just, you know, seeing him as this sort of like apex predator kind of guy in like Harlem, you know, who's like running everything and like, is like super smart. They say that, you know, maybe he would have been some sort of like scientific genius if he wasn't like, you know, if, if the, the kind of stressors of the, the world and of society weren't like put upon him and there was a more liberated society for him to exist in. And we see him after Malcolm's prison stint, just in like utter destitution and like barely able to like clean himself or move his body. And it's just devastating, you know, and you see this person sort of like operating at like what he perceived as kind of like the height of his power and then seeing him at his lowest of lows. And that scene, I, I think, comes not too much earlier in the film than like the eventual sort of like fallout that Malcolm has with Elijah Muhammad and uh, the Nation of Islam. You know, like he begins to see the fracturing in this like, you know, perfect, pristine sort of visage that he has of his leaders and of the people who he, I mean, he even uses the, the term adore. I adored this man, you know, like he was so sort of taken with him. There's that incredible scene when he first meets him in the flesh where Denzel is like in his room and it's like bathed in like golden light. And you see him like strained, like he's like kind of hunched over and like lopsided in his like movement and the way his body's kind of carried. Uh, and, and we see that just, slowly just kind of dissipate over the, the course of the film we, there's that moment with Baines too where he even sort of tells him like a man's deeds you know like outweigh any like his good deeds outweigh anything bad that he could possibly do or whatever um, I'm rambling here but I, I guess the ultimate thing that I'm thinking about is just sort of the way that like 
you know, it almost feels sort of like a, a meta commentary on on Malcolm as well, with all these experiences that he has that Spike is like kind of peppering in throughout the film of this idea of like these deified figures also having contradictions, also having holes, also having like kind of cracks in that visage that are worthy of exploring. Right. It's his wife, for example, that kind of like gets tries to press him, being like, You don't really think anything strange is going on? with elijah muhammad you don't notice all the girls that are around you don't hear all the rumors like you are closer to him than anyone else how do you not see this and you see in that moment where he just like it's very clear he's just he he has seen it and he's ignored it and he's explained it away in one way or another right that's i think having those moments it's very important where it's very clear malcolm as well as being capable of reinventing of like convincing himself of a reality. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he very much does that constantly in NOI until, you know, st- constantly get, he gets constantly shooken out of, you know, that sort of uh, distortion field and realizes, you know, there's something very wrong going on here. Um, and especially when he tries to talk to other people in NOI, right about it. And they're like, Hey, like you said, you know, they're just like, Hey, you know, forget about it. It's a remarkable thing that he did, that he came out and separated himself from the nation of Islam Mm -hmm. when he did. Watching it in this movie, I was just like totally struck by what a powerful thing that is for him to do and to do publicly and what had to die for him in order for that evolution that decision to move to something else and evolve to a different perspective what had to happen in order for that to take place and i think that when i think about you know what is truly revolutionary i think violence and militancy is important in any revolution against establishment powers but i also think what is important is precisely that thing that that Malcolm had, which is this willingness to surrender and to change, um, but to do so in a way that is empowered um, clarion and agent, Mm -hmm. but still understanding I don't have all the answers and I'm willing to keep exploring. That feels fundamental to to any revolutionary project. And I think that his willingness to do that, particularly you know, separating himself from this organization that was so instrumental to his fame and his recognition and his, um, the fine tuning of his ideology and that separating himself doesn't negate the time that he spent with them. And he kind of says as much in that very famous speech that like he's, he's moving to something else. He's expanding. He's not like, He's not denouncing. And that's important, I think, too, in our understanding of who this person was as like a human being that like he was willing to sort of accept mistakes and um, and learn from them and change. And that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think because the movie tries to communicate, like you said, how powerful that break is and how brave and courageous it is. But I think also it is hard to 
overstate how how much the NOI really became a force only because of Malcolm, right? This is an mm-hmm. organization that had maybe a few hundred people. And he raised its number. I mean, his you know his ministry raised the numbers into the tens of thousands. I think fifty thousand yeah. at its peak. Right. This is someone who um, was became second in command and was widely thought of as going to be the next leader. Personally trained the guy who became the leader, Louis Farrakhan, who I think you know killed him. But that's another talk. But who <laughs> <laughs> and or you know helped with it. And I think um, you know. This was the center of his life. This was the center of his connection to a lot of black community. This was his connection to his religious life. This was the connection to his family. And he also personally trained them in, um, you know, both in ministry and in the uh, fruit of Islam, in the defense arm, right? So leaving something that is literally the center of your universe and provide your livelihood, and also that you've trained to be a lethal force if necessary. Mm-hmm. And also, it's realizing it's a zealous group with a lot of people who think that you're not just like a problem, but a threat. You know, um, it's such an immensely brave choice that I think does well to highlight. You know, that next phase of reinvention. How lost he is. How transformative the Hajj to Mecca ends up being. Mm-hmm. Um, and why, when he comes back, he feels kind of consumed, right, by this desire to organize the OAU and to organize an Afro-American movement. But then also why he is feeling adrift and isolated and depressed and paranoid and, and, and at various points in the biography suggests that, that he feels do, uh, suicidal, right, that this is both like the highest point in terms of him really crafting himself and who he's going to be and his ideas and kind of being free from tethers and strings at almost. Um, but also at the same time, the most vulnerable and the loneliest mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, in that final part of his life and also in the movie. And I think the movie does it well. I mean, one of my favorite parts of the movie is, is, you know, of course that like iconic tracking shot, you know, that, Spike loves to use in his movies, yep. and it's and Malcolm X is in a fucking haze um, after you just watched him like clearly get tailed by unknown assailants, right? Who are both implied to be NOI and intelligence. Um, as uh, as uh, a change is going to come, you know, is playing mm-hmm. in the back, right? Which is also like, yeah, look, to your point about the music, the music is fucking phenomenal, and that was like I was obsessed phenomenal. with that song for years after I first. <laughs> saw the movie that was the first time i heard the song um i think that you know that yeah that break from the noi and that search for something greater right is also a period where like yeah spike lee kind of compresses it because in one way or another i think he maybe uh, part like assumes the audience understands how big the break is and that this is important, but also that is a period where like I could see another film or another short or something kind of focusing on it. Cause that's also where some of that's where you see some of Malcolm's most interesting, uh, most anti-capitalist, most anti-imperialist thoughts really come through. I mean, he'd been developing them in NOI, but with his, with his commit, with his conversion to Sunni Islam, 
And then with his like sort of attempt to re-engage with movements in the United States, really comes into his own in a beautiful way um, that I it would be hard. You know, it's it's probably hard to track and maybe, you know, reflecting on it, maybe it might have felt like repetitive or so on, you know, after you have a whole movie of him kind of issuing these sorts of critiques already. But those are like you know that period has some of my favorite speeches and writings from him you know on everything from the Viet- from what's brewing in the background to vietnam to uh, mm-hmm. palestine to you know uh, capitalism in the united states and abroad to like what role spiritual life should have in in community and our organizing and in our and our political systems and in the ways we relate to each other yeah, yeah the uh excerpt from one of his speeches that is included in the film that I I um, really love is a portion of a speech he gave where he is talking about the practice of Islam as being sort of like the one truth that will out racism in America and this sort of like, you know, spiral of violent decline that the country is in. And I do love that the film it's a shorthand for it but i think it's an effective one that the film sort of asserts his globalist perspective in showing us um his pilgrimage Mm -hmm. and and then in his return that he is sort of opening up his aperture and talking about things that go beyond the scope of harlem of the noi of um just the you know the civil rights fight in america and connects black struggle and the struggle of oppressed people globally to one another and like to your point like that's some of the stuff that is um the most compelling but it's also the thing that feels so um necessary to who he is and that he finds it um in separating himself but that also he couldn't have got there gotten there without the nation of islam i think is really is really fundamental i like what you were calling out edward about like the kind of shift not only in ideology but like within the film we see this sort of like shift in the kind of staging and the sort of archetypal cinematic things that that spike is doing with malcolm over the course of this i think about like the midpoint of the movie being malcolm being able to like galvanize this force marching in the street right and confronting like peter boyle and like the the cops the nypd outside of the hospital to make sure that uh, this guy gets uh, the the proper care that he needs after being incarcerated, right? And on that, like you know, he's able to command this vast legion of people with just like a couple of like hand signals, right? From like his his like gloved hand in the middle of winter. And as we go along, you know, Spike takes cues here from like his his favorite filmmaker Martin Scorsese, one of his favorite filmmakers, Martin Scorsese, and like turns. Uh, Malcolm into this like messianic figure like as he becomes more enlightened so too is he also like more and more profoundly isolated from everybody and you know like we see him have this interesting like kind of like 
submergence into like a single entity in the masses when he makes his pilgrimage um and he's at the the haram sharif and there's just like thousands of people around him right and he's just like this like speck in this grand vast tapestry of people uh and then from then on like there's that beautiful beautiful shot in like the wide in in the temple with the giant sort of like chandelier above him and the red carpet when he's praying and he's like so isolated in that shot where he's sort of like you know dipped into like the nature of the masses and of this you know like this idea that is islam and the sort of like globalizing universality of it and then he comes out like born anew and he's othered by like everybody around him in his society like you know like i i I think when he like returns like he's in that press conference and of course like angela bassett's on one side of him and he's got like you know his various like uh people there for security purposes but it very much feels like he is on one side isolated at a podium overlooking this mob of people you know some of them are reporters uh you know asking him like oh are you still a radical do you still believe in like you know arming black society and some of them are just you know like observers but all of a sudden he like he is that character on the other side being perceived individually and alone by the masses and you know that that's sort of his like price for enlightenment i guess is this like sort of total segregation from the ideologies of a lot of the other people around him that makes him more sort of uh singled out and and eventually like he becomes a recluse right like he becomes like almost paranoid like for good reason granted but he's he's ultimately like alone and that's sort of where he is when we when he meets his demise and meets his end uh by by the like final moments of this film that final stretch is also like yeah really powerful in, in painting that sort of isolation right painting that sort of cost and how much he's committed to still kind of pushing forward i mean you have all like the associates being like are you sure about this mm-hmm. do you want to do this and him insisting like no we can't you know we're not going to frisk people we're not going to have armed guards i'm going to speak it doesn't matter if they're death threats doesn't matter if i found a bug in my hotel room like i have to <laughs> you know i have to do this and i think that also helps drive home like the, you know the, that tragic final ending and resonate with the eulogy even more right that mm-hmm. you know as just as the cause for liberation is and as much as we all you know would want it or as much people will commit themselves to it you know it it can easily be cut short if you just you know shot and killed and and it also can be cut short if you know you have a war waged on you like malcolm did and you know of course you know he overcame a good chunk of it him and his org as well but like you know there are many people who have suffered similar conditions and given up um you know and or have been successfully sabotaged or undermined Mm -hmm. you know of course that's like part of the like heroic trope and like trying to paint it but it also does flesh him out as a person like knowing that you know you need to commit to something no matter even if you are going to be unsafe and even if it will come at the cost of your life and doing what you can to like make sure other people are safe but uh still committing to it i thought was like a really like poignant um kind of final arc to it that also tracks with like the autobiography including the um the sections that Haley had cut out right you know you have in that text malcolm uh, 
not so much expressing doubt, just as kind of like feeling and expressing the malaise and the depression and the and and the fear. I think the the fear instead of doubt in the cause, but fear that you know other forces might win out or um, crush you know cause for black liberation. I must emphasize at the outstart that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is not a politician. That's right. That's right. So I'm not here this afternoon as a Republican, nor as a Democrat. Not as a Mason, nor as an Elk. Not as a Protestant, nor a Catholic. Not as a Christian, nor a Jew. Not as a Baptist, nor a Methodist. In fact, not even as an American. Because if I was an American, the problem that confronts our people today wouldn't even exist. So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born, a black man. Before there was any such thing as a Republican or a Democrat, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Mason or an Elk, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Jew or a Christian, we were black people. In fact, before there was any such place as America, we were black. And after America has long passed from the scene, there will still be black people. I'm going to tell you like it really is. Every election year, these politicians are sent up here to pacify. They're sent here and set up here by the white man. This is what they do. They send drugs in Harlem down here to pacify us. They send alcohol down here to pacify us. They send prostitution down here to pacify us. Why, you can't even get drugs in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get prostitution in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get gambling in Harlem without the white man's permission. Every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle, that's a government seal you're breaking. Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. Bamboozled. Let us stray. Talking a little bit about the last act of the movie, when we get into like this uh, assassination and this like horrific tragedy, the sequence leading up to those final moments where we're kind of like backstage at the Audubon Ballroom and and the you know whole thing goes down. Uh, it's it's a montage and it's like a very flashy kind of you know spike moment. We hear like the phone ringing over the soundtrack. It's interspersed with this montage of. Uh, a dance happening at the Audubon Ballroom, like the evening before this this speech is supposed to take place. Uh, we get that cool like three sixty like angle <laughs> where like the camera goes all the way upside down and inverted and then back over with Malcolm. Uh, but I think that it's really really crucial, just based on what we're talking about, that the assassins uh, intrude upon one of those moments of like joy and of like black celebration that we talk about, like being kind of interspersed throughout the film the same way, like Sophia is like the interloper in that early, like sock hop scene when uh, we're with young Malcolm in this, we get all of the assassins at the Audubon ballroom while there's this dance happening and they're surveying all of the exits. They're planning their route, like into the place and back out of it. And we see them, uh, as these usurpers themselves and just like coming into the space preparing to commit this like horrible, horrible act. 
and, and I just thought like, you know, as I considered it, just what a compelling and interesting sort of like cinematic element Spike is employing there to like get us to sort of subconsciously recognize these moments and then to have it sort of like swept out from underneath us like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it really is beautiful. Like, I think you know, it's it's definitely like a sequence. I'm I was I've grown even more obsessed with over the years, right? Um, it's really nice and beautiful. I think also because it, it, it also like gestures at like what could have been, right? Like, mm-hmm. this was supposed to be a really good. This was supposed to be a speech that would you know, kind of inaugurate the, or the new program he was thinking of, you know, his family is present in a way that they feel like they haven't been able to because of how concerned he's been about their safety. Right. Um, it feels like you're at, we're at the precipice of a chance for him to really uh, build, you know, these sort of spaces for that sort of joy, for solidarity to happen that he's been searching for and he's been pushing for his whole life. And, and, and and I think to your point, you know, showing that intrusion, it's like it, it, it cinematically is really, I really liked it, you know, showing like, oh, like it's not actually the case. They're lurking, they're, they're lurking, waiting, planning to kill him, just like throughout his whole life, all these moments that might have been joyous and celebratory have within them um the taint of white supremacy, the threat of violence, you know, some force that never actually lets him go that is like just ready uh, to hurt or malign or to corrupt or to subvert uh, an attempt at, you know, just uh, celebrating and, and enjoying and living and having an actual life. I also, you know, this is a, a scene too where we uh, get that moment where we we spot the bug in the hotel room with Malcolm. And uh, then it cuts over to the the two feds listening in, who, by the way, are played by uh, Martin Donovan, a favorite of director Hal Hartley, who was in like 10 minutes of Tenet at the beginning. He's like the mm. kind of like agent guy who like employs John David Washington. Um, and the other guy who says the line about uh, about Martin Luther King and says, you know, compared to King, this guy's a monk uh, is director John Sayles who uh, made Mate One and Lone Star. I thought that was also a fun little line to include there because there are, because uh, Spike Lee points to and gestures to the conspiracies and um, in, in interesting ways with that scene, with the with him being tailed by NOI, and the assassins from the NOI and by white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have that little line um, felt also like a, Maybe not. I don't know if, how Spike Lee feels about Martin Luther King, but it, it felt like a little jab, also in mm-hmm. one way or another, to be like, "You guys are, you know, busy, or we're busy like demonizing the private life of this guy." But you know, what about what about King and like the fact that the feds caught him uh, cheating on his wife uh, multiple times and tried to blackmail him with it? Yeah, like it is a, a sort of interesting subversion of that same kind of thought that we were talking about earlier, you know, sort of like this indoctrination of like, Oh, you know, Dr. King was the nice one. And, uh, Malcolm was the mean one, right? Like the bad one. And, and, uh, I like that he sort of introduces that contradiction. One thing that, uh, Carly was pointing out was that, you know, while, while this does introduce that idea that, you know, the feds are obviously there watching and, 
that you know there there are uh, state agencies and state actors involved in surveilling Malcolm X that the movie kind of sidesteps like just mm. how deeply involved like mm-hmm. the state was in in trying to take down these civil rights figures and trying to like just gather any information they could trying to like uh you know act as like agent provocateurs in certain ways and in, in these things carly you did a, a significant amount of like reading on it be- before we got on mic i'll just say like there's one line in particular that i i was disappointed by um and it's when malcolm is on the phone with betty and it's towards the end of his life and he says you know i think i'm gonna stop saying it's it's the nation of islam that's after me um i think i think it's not just the nation of islam and that is perhaps all Spike was able to say, right? right. Like yeah. he's, he is not able to name COINTELPRO in it, right. in his movie. Right. I understand that, um, but that felt like a really feckless um, gesture toward what we know to be the case, which is that the FBI had infiltrated Black liberation movements all over the country and was systematically taking these people down. Um, through you know a multitude of means and it is well documented that j edgar hoover's goal was stated as uh the the mission of COINTELPRO was to prevent the ascendance of a messiah and this is the word that he used Mm -hmm. of a messiah that would unite black people in america in brotherhood and in strength and and ultimately in violence against white supremacy. And so like knowing what we know about COINTELPRO and knowing what was documented even at the time and all that's come out since then, um, I think one of the, you know, valid level criticisms or criticisms to level at this film are the ways in which it, really glosses over the federal government's involvement in his death. Mm. Um, And, you know, there's a statistic I read that was something to the effect of like in one file that they had on him, one single file of hundreds, they had 2,300 pages on information of information on Malcolm X in, in one single file. So, Mm. you know, the, the dedication to surveilling and um and manipulating this man and his life was thorough and uncompromising um by the fbi and when i was uh doing some reading on this i found a couple of articles that talked about um how in 2021, funnily enough, it was like an ABC News article. And I was like, ABC News? Okay. Um, <laughs> in 2021, there was um, a case that ostensibly exonerated Muhammad Aziz, who was a man that um, was convicted, one of several, for Malcolm X's murder. And he spent 22 years in jail for that crime. The statement came about um, with 
some revelations around the FBI's involvement in the murder and key eyewitnesses that were uh, actually revealed to be FBI informants that, you know, fingered Aziz and several others who had since died. So conveniently, like they weren't able to say like, you're completely innocent, sir. But um, it did renew interest in um, the details of Malcolm X's murder. And um, funnily enough, last week, a suit for $40 million against the federal government on behalf of Muhammad Aziz was filed, um, basically charging the FBI COINTELPRO with the murder of Malcolm X. And the goal of this case is stated outright, not as um, not to be focused on the murder and the details of Malcolm X's murder specifically, but instead to show a consistent history of COINTELPRO's infiltration um, and manipulation of these black liberation groups um, and their involvement in uh, taking down their leaders. And Fred Hampton is mentioned and several other um, notable figures. And it's interesting that, you know, the case itself is not seeking exoneration per se for certain people, but rather seeking the implication of structures of power Mm. in America. And that's a thing that I think like there's only so much Spike Lee can do with this film. Right. Um, It's a Warner movie. Like he's, he's uh, his hands are tied to a certain degree. And um, there were still many things about Malcolm X's murder that um, were not known to the public, but I do think it's interesting, particularly in the last like five to 10 years, as you noted, that like renewed interest in this figure and also in like, you know, a a broader literacy for just like the understanding of the FBI's involvement in um, the corruption and like dismantling of revolutionary groups and revolutionary movements in this country, like there is more literacy for that than I think there was even just like five years ago. Um, and it's still like not something that's broadly talked about, you know, in friendly media, which is something that COINTELPRO memos mention all the time <laughs> that was actually used as a, ta- a tactic to create factionalism in these groups. They would mm-hmm. work with media to run these pieces, rumor mongering and making accusations about, um, certain figures in these groups to to seed um, unrest and mistrust within them. But um, I bring that up because I think it's an important piece to talk about when you're talking about his murder and um, and the ways in which that COINTELPRO considers his murder a successful counterintelligence mission mm-hmm. in in the simply by the fact that it was able to infiltrate the NOI and, you know, plant informants that fingered certain people and all of that. It's funny to think of uh, Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar Hoover biopic 
being more clarion and definitive <laughs> about his participation in the destabilization of civil rights movements yes. than Spike Lee's movie. But, yeah. Uh, there you go. Shout out to that movie, by the way. Uh, underrated in Clint's filmography. Uh, I will go to bat for it. It's uh, it's pretty good. And Leonardo DiCaprio is in some really funny makeup. So check it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You know, like there is something missed by glossing over it. I mean, like even what they knew at the time, you know, we knew that the NYPD itself had a unit dedicated to civil rights leaders like Malcolm X, that they refused to actually put uniformed officers in the ballroom, but instead on the roof and the sidewalk, that they knew there were death threats and had wires on them, that they wiretapped him. I mean, there was one guy who, there was a, I remember if it was a documentary or essay I read, but they used to brag that like they knew him so well that to avoid him hearing the click of the wiretap, they would put it on the second ring because he always picked up his calls on the second ring. You know, like they listened to every single call, attended all of his speeches, um, had people. Uh, and when they couldn't, if it was if because they would be too conspicuous because they were white, they'd have black men go into the speeches and the, and the rallies and, and, and give them information or, you know, mm-hmm. try to record there and, and bring it back to them. We knew that they had informants, like you said, in the NOI, like uh, they had the national secretary uh, was an informant and in the documentary refuse like keeps oscillating between i wasn't an informant to like i could have been you know so so, you know um and we knew that like they had memos regularly kind of talking about like what it would take to neutralize you know malcolm x and martin luther king jr right as well as you know members of the black panther party members of core members of snake you know all the groups um and and it was so clear, and Malcolm was so aware of it that it does it like you said. I think it it is right to call it feckless to kind of reduce it to a line and a few images moving in the background, really, and in a scene here or two, because it was like the second that rift opened, they spring into action and took advantage of it, feeding these stories to exasperate the exasperate the uh, the rift um, to inflame tensions. Uh, to get, you know, members to consider violence against him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's still the massive question of, like, you know, when he was assassinated, NYPD goes from five assailants to three, you know, and th- that question um, doesn't really ever get adequately explained and instead is leaves a lot of room for wondering, like, okay, like, I don't even, I don't even think they ever figured out or apprehended the literal guy who shot him with the shotgun. You know, instead they have um, and they have uh, what uh, Talmadge Hayer, uh, Norman three X, and Thomas fifteen X, and no physical evidence for any of them mm-hmm. apprehend them um, and and say that these are the guys. And as you said, then the lawsuits uh, come in and try lawsuits filed by people who are because they're all giving life sentences, trying to exonerate them or raise the question of whether the state was involved, which it almost certainly was, right? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so even I, I think it's fair to one say, you know, at the time they had all this information, should have put it in, and also to be like, well, it, it does feel 
like we can talk about it now in a way that like when I review literature written about it at the time and reviews and discussions, it doesn't seem like people were even willing to, right? It seems like the peak of discussing the uh, COINTELPRO was around the revelations, then it declined significantly, and then it's only been a resurgence in the past 10 to 15 years, even though all, most of this has been knowledge that someone you know, would know or come across, especially if they were um, you know, doing intense and deep research on crafting a story about Malcolm X. And especially if they listen to his conversations and talks where he made it clear that he thought, you know, like federal government is out to get me and, yep. and, and is surveilling me. Like, um, you know, I think, uh, and also, also to your point, it really does kind of deprive like another chance and another thread and maybe even like a really powerful final, a thread to reinforce that like yeah the government also the the society itself is trying to block you know what should be a very simple and obvious just cause of liberation here and would stoop so low as to like spend years isolating someone so that they would eventually get assassinated either by them by their own agents or by their former colleagues comrades and family and community members yeah and the really sadistic thing about those tactics is it feeds into the narrative of black on black crime mm -hmm. and completely eschews, you know, any responsibility on the part of structural forces, literal right. and figurative, um, you know, creating environments where such a thing could happen. And in, in the case of uh, Malcolm X and other leaders that like, it was quite literally like, manipulation and coercion on the part of the federal government and that doesn't to me i think like the the ending of the film is still incredibly potent mm -hmm. um and extremely emotional um and i do think it's important for us to contextualize spike closing the film with image after image footage um on loop of Malcolm smiling, mm -hmm. laughing, yeah. joking, um, being energized by his speaking, shaking people's hands, because that counters this image that we're we've been talking about that, you know, was being broadly disseminated um in schools formally and also just like culturally was how he was painted, that he he was this, you know angry vengeful evil um man and i think there's like also the bell hooks argument which is like well does that defang him if like we were showing those images of him like is that is that removing the importance of the necessity of his militancy mm -hmm. um but it is i think um it's it's still a powerful note to end on that you know, we see images of him smiling and laughing and that each of these children standing up saying I'm Malcolm X is countering this like yep. work of the American education system to to paint this man as um, a terrible figure. Yeah. Before we talk about the very, very end of the movie there, I do want to just go back a little bit and talk about the moments leading up to the assassination scene. The assassination scene itself is like I mean, horrifying, like for all those like moments of violence that we see in the the film or, or lack thereof you know where where spike you know maybe you know capitulates a little bit or or uh, equivocates here a little bit like 
that final moment, there's the cacophony of noise and the screaming and like uh, Angela Bassett's like sobs, like high in the mix and the the, the gun blast going off. Uh, it is horrifying and like uh, just like shattering. Like it really is just like, I mean, it's it's just a total assault on your senses as you're watching it. Uh, but it's it's prefaced by one of the most delicate scenes in the movie where like it strips away a lot of spikes stylized kind of qualities and it's just him in this back room in front of this like bulblet mirror with a couple of members of like his cohort at first like admonishing them being frustrated clearly kind of frazzled and then eventually just sort of like solidifying his resolve and sending the the security guy away to go and make a phone call and he even says to him like you know it's it's a time for martyrs now and and he's speaking very softly he's apologetic and it's such like a i don't know it it, it lingers with me as like one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie there's just something about it that ha- it's just so pregnant with that like anticipation of what's to come and sort of like a quiet like rueful acceptance of it you know that he knows that this is now like an inevitability and whether it's today or whether it's the next day like what's left for him to do then to achieve this status of martyr uh and i I don't know it just it i think it's breathtaking i think it's like some of denzel's like quietly like best parts of the movie um and and i just i'm so moved by it when i watch it Uh Yeah, you know, every time I really am. I think that, you know, this makes it, you know, we were talking a little bit about before the episode about performances, but, you know, like this was my first Denzel film, I think. Hmm. And, you know, I've my, my favorite performance from him, but also like one that didn't, I feel like sometimes when you see like or you start off with an actor's best performance, it gets sours or it makes it hard to appreciate all their other work. But it's like in there is all the things that I really enjoy about him as an actor when he's on the screen. Um, and, and, and also makes it and highlights just like how brings like added life to Malcolm X and mm-hmm. added life to this movie and to the tragedy and to the, just like really some of these like quiet moments where you're just sitting with him and you'll, and you can just see him or he's communicating really well, how thoughts are racing, you know, how emotions and ed- or nerves are edged or on high, you know, um, in a way that I just can't imagine another person having done. And that I always find is like a nice, also final bit, you know, calming bit at the end of the movie as well. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it breaks very, very immediately to sort of like the black and white footage of him being carried out in the stretcher into the ambulance, the doctor pronouncing him dead on arrival, and then almost like crashes into that eulogy with all that footage of the real Malcolm X over it. And that's Ozzy Davis speaking, by the way, who delivered that same eulogy at Malcolm X's actual funeral um, in 1965. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just incredibly potent. We get that. And then we get the the scene you were mentioning, Carly, of the, the children standing up saying, I am Malcolm X, 
One of those children uh, is John David Washington, then eight years old at the time. No! Yeah. Oh, really? Yes, one of the, the kids at the end. I, I, I wasn't <laughs> able to clock him. I, I read about it after the fact, but I'll have to go back and watch and see which one. It's like, that's obviously uh, the, the one there, but, Oh my God, I love that. Um, but, but it combines, you know, both these kids in like, a you know, a public school in Harlem, uh, you know, being taught by, uh, the Oracle from matrix revolutions. Yep. Uh, and also with young, uh, South African children in Soweto doing this before it transitions to, uh, some words from Nelson Mandela. And uh, this is being filmed roughly a year after his release from prison. It is happening at the same time as conversations are happening governmentally about ending apartheid in South Africa. And I think it's uh, like, you know, the introduction of the Rodney King footage at the end, just one of these brilliant kind of moments that pulls us out into the now that showcases you know, at the beginning, we see obviously like the horrors that we're still dealing with, the the way the work continues. But then the other side of that same coin, that other part of the work continuing, where it's like here are these sort of global strides being made in other places. Here's a figure of Black liberation elsewhere, and the way that he has internalized Malcolm's words. Also, you know, having that movie end on. Mandela or yeah, end with Mandela also in that final stretch was perfect also because I think, you know, I, from people I've talked to over the years about it, um, Mandela's role in the apart in the anti-apartheid movement is kind of like abstracted to such a massive degree where people mm-hmm. just have a vague, even more so I think than a lot of our civil rights leaders where people have a vague sense of him just, you know, speaking out against it, going to jail, much in a way similar to King, and then coming out and not realizing, was, <laughs> you know, him and his wife were doing terrorism, <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that, that that you know, they that was the level of resistance that had been necessary against the apartheid regime, and so I think that's also been one thing I think I've enjoyed over the years, but I probably, I don't think I've seen much talked about is the inclusion of Nelson Mandela does then also kind of invite some people to like look into him and learn more about him because really you do not, I don't, I cannot really recall ever learning about him in any significant way until, or until I did it on my own and really not hearing about anything in schooling until like college when I was taking classes on, on uh, liberation movements across the world. And so um, and also with Aussie Dave and learning more about Aussie Davis through that eulogy as well. I mean, th- I think that's also one of my favorite bits of the movie and those ending stretches, inviting more questions and, and offering an invitation to learn more um, and dive more into this history uh, by having these, like that sort of like beautiful tie in, right. With such like a arousing eulogy. And then from another leader of liberation, overseas that people definitely don't have the chance to engage with uh, seriously. Yeah. And I think also, you know, countering a lot of, or perhaps supplementing images of protests in Los Angeles in April of the same year mm-hmm. um, after the verd- the verdict uh, about the police officers who, who beat Rodney King within inches of his life. 
Um, the, the film also closes with, you know, huge crowds of black people holding up signs with Malcolm X's name on it and like asserting his importance in like, not just like the black community, but in like America, um, and in like some sort of American project that is filled with promise. And I, I think the film ending on that tenor, um, is important. Um, not just, you know, because it feels good. Right. But because of like the thing we're saying, which is like so much of the conversation around Malcolm X at the time was, you know, in the complete opposite direction of that. Um, there was not conversation about his work and his project in relation to like hope and how much he cared about, uh, you know, protecting black people from the, from suffering, um, at the hands of, of white America and, and that there was so much, um, alongside his militancy and his, his dedication that there is, as we've been talking about, like a vulnerability, a softness, uh, an ease to him um, that I think Denzel does a good job capturing. And, you know, we don't need to say the performance is outstanding because like it is, and that's an obvious statement to make. Water is wet. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But like one thing I just want to call out that I was really moved by on this watch that I hadn't clocked before is the way that uh, Denzel's voice is hoarse in a good portion of the center stretch of the film. Um, And it's because he was orating the way that uh, Malcolm did um, when he was rehearsing and, and Malcolm's voice also, you know, you can hear in some of his speeches that his voice is also hoarse. And so, you know, that like making its way onto screen and these other little details um, about his hand or whatever it may be, like feel like um, it's not a performance, right? It is Denzel actively invoking and evoking this man um, on screen for people who might not ever spend this much time with him in their entire lives. And I think even in interviews, he talks about it in a similar way that he feels like he was possessed almost. Yeah. You know, and he, I mean, <laughs> you know, he was, like, you know, I, I, I think it comes through even more. Cause like, like you guys were saying at the top, doesn't quite look like him, but the way in which he is able to sell presence and voice uh, more than make up with that for that and make it feel even closer to him because of that, I think. Charter ready? Uh, no, brother. No. No, why not? You had enough time, didn't you? You and the sister? I apologize, brother minister. We'll have it next week. Next week? I don't. We don't have next week. We need it today. The people are out there today. They're waiting to hear the charter today, not next week. Next week, minister. Is the ribbon here? Reverend Chickenwing called, said he wouldn't be able to attend. So now we don't have an opening speaker, we don't have a charter. I mean, why didn't you inform me about this last night? I talked to you. Why didn't you tell me last well, night? Well, I called Sister Betty. You didn't have to call said... Sister Betty. You, I talked to you. You should have told me. What are you telling Sister Betty for? Well, I assumed. Don't it. assume anything, brother. 
Just keep going with the breath. Yes, sir. Duty for the secretarial staff. I'll assist the Robin if she. Call up the Reverend. See if he can make it down here. So, on the subject of Denzel, because it is Denzember, I did want to post to you, Edward, what would you consider to be your top five goaded, top five all time Denzel Washington performances? And it can be from any part of his career, it does not have yeah. to be just the 90s. Yeah, no, this is a this is uh this is a hard one. I think obviously this movie, you know, this is in there. Um I really, really loved Fences. Um I loved him in Fences so much. I think that um I was surprised by uh by it and I'd also and I really liked the play from it as well. You know, I love I love training day. I love him in training day. We're big training day folks oh, as yeah. well. King Kong ain't got shit on me. You know, I lo- <laughs> after I saw that movie, I was saying that all the fucking time. Um, Glory comes in and out for me sometimes. Mm. Although, you know, of course, like, you know, the scene that, you know, where he takes off his uh, shirt or takes off his clothing to show the scars um, was like, is one I think about a lot. Um, and I was also thinking about it when you mentioned it, when we were talking about Apologia and white guilt because that's all it's it's funny that like he, he did so well in that movie and it's such a different movie <laughs> such a different movie <laughs> yeah oh yeah it's it's very different oh um what else oh my god i really loved him in um you know tragedy of Macbeth. i was very i think surprised by that one because one you know code brothers doing uh uh, reinterpretation of Macbeth. I was excited to see what they did with it. And I think it was also, it came at a time where I'd been like in school. I didn't really like Shakespeare. Uh, I think partly because of the fucking, uh, dis- the really bad pedagogical decision to like, just make kids popcorn read Shakespeare. Oh God. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> can't do that. As I've, as I've gotten old, <laughs> as I've gotten older, I realized that you need to just let a bunch of freaks go weird on it. And then that's where it <laughs> yes. shines because wow, do I love his plays when I actually watch them and have people do them. Um, but hated reading them, especially because, you know, when we were growing up, no one teaches you how to read them. No one no. teaches you how they're supposed to sound. No one teaches you. There's a rhyme structure in that. I, right. I, you know, so, so learning that, and then Macbeth becoming one of my favorite plays eventually, and then seeing him in uh, in, in Macbeth was uh, I really loved his performance, and I, I was obsessed with it when it came out. Um, 
And the fifth one, I don't know. I feel like hmm. the fifth one is in what what would be one of my I feel like the fifth one is also one that's kind of in flux, you know, because I think I really I love him in Philadelphia. I love him in Hurricane uh, as as Hurricane um, and those kind of swap back and forth for me sometimes. So I don't know. I'd say I'd say those ones. Those are all one. Most of them are ones I also saw pretty early on, right around the time I saw Malcolm X, and was like kind of just like really starting to watch and figure out what I liked about movies. Um, um, but also, it's also hard because it's like I've kind of love every single fucking performance he does, right? Like you said, <laughs> yeah. he's the greatest, yeah. greatest living actor, you know. Um, so I don't know. I have to think about it again too. Maybe I feel like the more I think about it, the more it will change. What about you guys? What are some? What are your favorite uh, Denzel picks? Oh man, I here's here's I'm gonna uh, give a caveat here and say that Carly and I will give our definitive top fives when we wrap Denzember at the end of this mm, month on one of our okay. final episodes. Okay. But uh, up until then, we can definitely talk about a couple that uh, you didn't mention that I think about all the time. Um, I mean, anything he did with Tony Scott, I think about Crimson Tide, Man on Fire, you know, uh, all of those. I know Carly is a huge Crimson Tide person as well. Uh, What's one of yours, Carly? I mean, when I'm watching Crimson Tide, I'm like, this is the best movie ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I might rewatch it. And and because it's, it's Denzel, who, as we've said multiple times, is, you know, our greatest living actor and also maybe my all time favorite actor, Gene Hackman. Who I think is also up there is just one of like those those brilliant performers, and the two of them head to head in that movie. It's really... not like an important film, right? Like it's not. We're not talking about Malcolm <laughs> right. X. It's not here, Malcolm X, but it's like one of those movies that is like pure cinema, where you're like, oh, like this is why movies exist. Yeah. This is like I'm here to be entertained. I am watching two incredible talents, just like absolutely destroy <laughs> every scene they're in yeah. um it's it's like the the like platonic ideal of like a commercial cinematic entertainment yeah that's what tony scott's good for that is what tony scott's good for um another one of denzel's that i really love that's his later period is a movie called flight mm. um mm-hmm. yeah. love flight he's just like i'm drunk so, right now i'm dr- drunk oh, right now and you're oh. like oh of course you are <laughs> the, just the, like sobbing the look in his face is like pursed lips and it's I, the close-up on it like oh I, man what a what a film that is i think yeah it's it's funny because i think about that film and how like that scene gets cut up and used as a meme but it really does because it's so fucking good it's yeah. so, so fucking good. Good. And it's it's this devastating. is devastating. This is the thing we talk about with Denzel. We just had this conversation uh on on one of our most recent episodes of the show talking about like the equalizer too. Literally mm. like like the I saw you guys posting about the equalizer. Should I should I dive into them? Yes. They're I mean, yes. they're a very good time. It's it's Fuqua uh reuniting with Denzel, letting him just be like a badass and you know, like being a, a hero to the streets and fighting mafia guys. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a total blast. They, they almost mm-hmm. kind of take on like slasher film qualities. Some of mm-hmm. them like in like the, the final kind of set pieces. Uh, but those are, those are a lot of fun. Watch the equalizer movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're they're good. They're good. I, the first I'm and dumb. second ones are awesome. Yeah, I'm done. I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of just like one more that we missed that like is is up there for me, and I'm sure I'm I'm missing a whole bunch of them, but uh, I don't know. Training Day is up there for me as well, for sure. Yeah, Ricochet. I guess we can talk about. We haven't talked about Ricochet before. One of his one early of my ones. favorite movies of his. But uh, I mean, you can't go wrong with Denzel. Like he's he's worth the price of admission, and one of those people who like I I, I so seldom like encourage people to do deep dives on actors filmographies because it's like you're gonna run into a bunch of stinkers like no matter how good the actor is like they've made bad movies but with denzel like it i'm hard-pressed to find a bad denzel performance like even in movies that no, they that don't great. exist they don't exist so a cinematic treasure uh yes. and edward thank you for for your top five we'll uh-huh. we'll take it to the bank we'll make sure to uh i don't know we'll have to canonize it somewhere make sure people can find it we'll put it in the sh- we'll put it in the episode description for this show but right. to your point i mean he's so prolific and he's so good that the top five denzel performances could change on any given day i think for yeah. all of us yeah yeah no i definitely do even as i'm sitting here thinking about it i'm thinking about crimson tide and i'm like okay that one we could we could put that one is moving up in my head it's and so i know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're all fantastic. Um, and it's such a, a wonderful privilege to be able to talk about Denzel and to talk about him in Spike Lee's joint Malcolm X with you, Edward. Um, thank you again so much for talking with us and for going extremely long on a movie that I think really necessitates it. Oh, I love talking with you guys. How can I not? I mean, the first time <laughs> I talked with y'all was about Crash, which is a movie I was dying to talk with, with people about. And and now we get to talk about Malcolm X. I love, yeah, I love coming on this show talking with you guys. Thank you so much. We were You're batting a thousand, bro. <laughs> like just gonna, just gonna, I, I said this on our last episode too, but like when when we initially just like got into contact with each other, talked about you coming on the show, you sent like a short list of movies that you want to talk about, and they're all like ten out of ten like canon classics, you know, like from all over the spectrum too. So I'm not gonna spoil which other ones you may have <laughs> right. put on that list, but <laughs> yeah, but just know Hit Factory Nation that uh, whenever you see Edward's name in the title as the featured guest you're in for a good time and you're in for a great movie absolutely i appreciate it thanks for coming on uh edward where can people find you and your work around the internet you can find me on twitter big black jacobin you can find me at logic magazine where i'm an editor i'm gonna be uh i just read this amazing essay which got rid of a writing block i had around my sub stack and so i'm gonna be back on my sub stack again um and um <laughs> it's been so long how long it's been so, so like almost a year that i f- also forgot the name of my sub stack so <laughs> 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 give me one second as i figure that out <laughs> Ooh, wow i really need to i need to get back on that what was what was, this is the name of it check i am oh my god now i have to sign into it and check my password whatever it is just look up my name in Substack and you'll find it. I was going to say, we'll link to it regardless. <laughs> we yeah. will link to it. It is uh, thetechbubble.substack.com. The te- there we go. There we go. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no Whoa. offense, but like that's such a money move. Yeah, that's <laughs> quite like, a flex I don't know. I forgot the name of it. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we'll link to it for sure. And you've got things forthcoming in there. It is dormant no longer. Yeah, no, no, we're going to be back. We're so back. From our end of things, uh, you can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, where for just $5 per month, you get the entire Hit Factory experience bi-weekly bonus episodes some more bonus content coming down the pipeline shortly we've been doing some stuff talking about some more contemporary movies by filmmakers who were also active in the 90s so go check those out uh we've got more denzember coming your way for the entire month of december i'll give a shout out to our patrons i'll give a shout out to our overlords their names are linda jared murray thank you for your continued support We'll catch you all on the next one. Take care, everybody. But he winds up knocking me.